Well, welcome to the Tech Rag. I'm Kevin Nelson, and I'm excited to be able to have a conversation with Kristen Felder. The what did you say you were that the director, the director of chaos, director of chaos, of chaos at yeah. Collision Hub? Uh, <laughs> but every everybody knows Kristen. She's been in this industry for a long, long time, and and we're very privileged here at NCS to be able to have a very unique relationship with them. And and uh, Kristen, so welcome to the Tack Rag. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we started our conversation, I had found a couple of things that I had questions about. You you had posted, I don't know, a day or so ago yeah. uh, about the fact that CCC had removed articles, uh, an article regarding errors in paint and material from their website. When was this originally put out there? What was it about and why is it significant to us now? Yeah, so CCC's always had like a question and answer where shops and can submit questions. It's like there's they call it the Zing Desk. It's like a help help kind of thing. Um, and about three years ago, this came out, written by CCC from their Zen Desk, posted on their website, and kind of a brief explanation of where uh, how the paint materials formula, I guess, doesn't work more than how it does work. Um, but what some of the issues are specifically when there's panel reductions, either an across the board panel reduction for refinish or a blend refinish panel reduction. Um, what is and isn't part of material calculation? And, and really it's it's a great it's a great article for why the paint material calculation system hasn't worked in years and why shops should be invoicing and, and putting that on their estimate, um, whether they do it at the end or whether they do a, a you know kind of a more forward facing invoice. But it's almost impossible. It's not almost. It is impossible for that archaic formula from the 70s, basically, to account for all of the consumables and you know liquids, hard costs, et cetera, that a shop has in repair. Um, SCRS had mentioned this article even, I want to say like a year ago at a CIC, the one that was out in Pennsylvania. Right. And it talked about, hey, shops, this is a great tool for you to explain to adjusters and consumers why you're invoicing. Um, and that was well before kind of this latest, I guess, aggressive increases we've seen from manufacturers over the last, you know, four to six months. Um, so we started talking about it really heavily about a month or two ago, um, ourselves and a couple of companies that did invoicing. Um, and then magically, about three days ago, this three-year-old article suddenly disappeared off of CCC's website. They deleted it. Um, fortunately, Google caches website pages and so we were able to go back and find the cache of the page and and make sure everybody can have a copy of it it's it's a great negotiation tool when you you know when an adjuster tells you well it's it's factored in in ccc's formulas when you can put it in their own words and go well no actually it isn't here's an article right so uh, you said it's it's archaic the way yeah. that the way that paint materials are calculated right mm -hmm. is there SCRS has, has talked about it. Is there any movement at all at changing it? <laughs> I don't think you'll ever see that change. And, and in some ways, that's not really CCC or, or Mitchell's fault, so to speak. I mean, that you, you had a calculation method and they tell you up front that the estimating system is just a tool. Turn off what you don't want and turn on what you do want and adjust your rates accordingly to fit your business model. Um, and so in essence, we've got to be the intelligent repairer that says that's not that's not calculating my cost. I'm going to turn that off or zero that out and then come up with my own invoice. 
Now we have noticed a lot of insurers lately that are doing their own invoicing systems. Um, so like Shelter and American Family and a couple of others have started creating their own material invoices. They're not close to being accurate, but it's a start, right? Um, as a as a contrast negotiation. So when a shop submits their own invoice, they'll make a, a counter one. Um, and it's it's not the Mitchell calculator. We're seeing a lot of use of like Micromix and some others by the insurers. Um, and I think I think that's positive. I know shops get a little mad that some of the pricing is below wholesale that the insurers are using, but at least they're acknowledging that there's need there's a need for itemization. Once we agree that there's a need, then we can negotiate pricing later. We just have to first agree that one method doesn't work and that we both need to itemize. So I see that as a positive change for the insurers. Well, and I don't want to I don't want to divert from the conversation, but. Logic is a wonderful tool to be able yeah, to create for the shop to be able to create those invoices that they need. So yeah, and you know, mix, mixing, you know, connecting automatically with CCC and and you know, bringing in consumables, pourables, et cetera. It's a great tool. Yeah, we have it here. We have logic here. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful tool. All right, sh I'm shifting gears. I was reading in Collision Week. I think it was yesterday. Came out with an article. There was a a white paper. Uh, written that examines the impact of OEM collision repair parts design patents on consumers, uh, industry environment. How how does how are these new OEM patented parts <laughs> going to impact the the vehicle owner and the the collision center? Well, I mean, uh, this is nothing new. About every time that we have, so right now we're, we've got the right to repair. Um, bill kind of in, in federal and that's getting a lot of play. And, and that's not, I think a lot of people focus on how right to repair is going to affect ADAS and tooling and, and all of that and calibrations. But then then partnered up in all this right to repair is is the is the patents and, and aftermarket part issue. So OEMs have to protect themselves, their intellectual property, they've designed a part, they've invested millions and billions of dollars into the substrate into making sure that substrate and design crashes accordingly. Um, parts have to work as a sum, not as an individual. So that, right. that part's designed right. to work with the part that's next to it, next to it, next to it. You know, it's like a domino effect. Um, so they've gone more towards patents to kind of protect that for as many years as they can to prevent reverse engineering from aftermarket companies. Um, so how, how does patents you know, affect consumers? Well, they protect them. Um, they may ensure that hopefully... Uh, when it goes to the repair of their vehicle, there's not a lower standard alternative that a third party bill payer would force the use of. Now, I, I agree that consumers want choices, you know, like I I buy the, you know, off brand peanut butter at Kroger for my kids because they eat a lot of peanut butter. But this is something completely different. Consumer choice means if I'm going to go take my car to the shop, I get the choice. Right. But the way that it's it's done with the bill payer and the insurers, the consumer doesn't get a choice. They're kind of forced with these parts and have to deal with them. We we have a long history of aftermarket part failures. I mean, you can sign up on the Intertech or CAPA website and get the weekly or monthly decertification reports. So these are the parts that CAPA has previously told you are as good as OE. We warranty them, they cert we certify them. And then a year or so later, they send out a oopsie, the parts a safety hazard, the consumer may get injured. You're gonna wanna go recall these parts. As shops, we can't track that. I mean, if, if I install that part, I can't watch that list for the rest of my life to try to go notify a customer that a, a Honda aftermarket core support I used three years ago has now been recalled. 
consumer that, that, that the insurance company required them to use. Yeah, required you to use. I mean, specifically right. in DRP programs, et cetera. But so I can't do that as a shop. I don't have the admin, the bandwidth, time for that. The consumer doesn't really know how to do that. So we've been installing these aftermarket parts that are consistently recalled for safety issues. And there is no requirement in the law that these aftermarket companies notify consumers. So, so they don't have to follow the same rules that our OEs have to do on certain things. We don't have these recall situations on OE crash parts. I think if we all close our eyes, we can probably think, you know, 10 years ago, I remember a Chevy Fender issue and then there was a hood, you know, but they're so rare and far between. But I mean, every month it's 50 to 100 parts that are getting recalled or decertified. So uh, your, your lobbyist for the aftermarket part companies um, from these companies overseas, they pay a lot of money for lobbyists and for economists to write these white papers so that they can hand them out to legislators to hopefully vote in their favor. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's paid sense. advertising more than it is a true, you know, tr a true educator or, or PhD doctorate looking at this issue. And it, it's frustrating because on our side, we don't, I don't want to say we don't have the money to do that, but our story is so complex. It would be very hard to find somebody with a PhD and, you know, an economist or whatever to tell our side of it. So um, we, we fight a big battle when we go through these things, but, but yeah, the parts is kind of a forgotten issue of the right to repair act that I think people aren't paying attention to right now. Gotcha. All right. So what else, what, what new is going on at collision hub? What are you guys, uh, what are you, what are you currently working on? What are y'all doing? Yeah, well, I think what's not going on right now. So um, we are, um, you know, I, we're kind of wrapped up with our, you know, we have our consulting business with the shops and our 20 groups and whatever. And, and a lot of our shops, I don't want to say are struggling. Um, there's a lot of work to be done right now. Um, and there's, you know, good profitability on that work. So I think our definition of struggling is a little different these days than it was maybe even five years ago. Um, shops are busy. But we've just got a lot of issues right now. There's an increased friction in negotiations, getting paid the right way to fix cars. Um, and that's due to the turnover and changes on the insurer side. Um, it's not a they're trying to not pay us. It's they're struggling finding people just like we are. Um, there's changes in how shops have to organize themselves. I mean, for the most part, we've all kind of ran our businesses the same for the last 50 years. Job titles have been the same. We've got some cool new software, but we're still really running body shops the same way. Um, but labor shortages are going to force us to have to relook at job titles and how we run the shop. And I'm not really going to go recruit somebody for a career anymore. I've got to go find somebody that wants a job. Um, and I'm going to have turnover, you know, something that we don't like to think about in collision. But, you know, so how do I plug and play people but not completely shut down my shop when one person leaves or whatever? Um, so we're working on those training models, um, virtual training paths so that shops can hire someone in your store, but we'll train them virtually because you don't have the time to train somebody that's completely green. You've got cars to deliver and there's stuff going on. So we're, we're working on that. We're working on more tools to that shops can just use as reference tools to kind of make things go a lot faster. Um, and then payment plans that can be viewed different alternative payment plans for or you know, for the technicians? Gonna, for technicians, for estimators, et cetera. Because a lot of shops are like, hey, I know I have to change. It's going to be real hard to stay a competitive, viable, successful shop and still do old pay plans, like commission, you know, base pay plans. 
So we're going to move to hourly salary, et cetera, specifically for those plug and play roles. And, and what does that look like? And how do you still motivate people? And, um, you know, can I, can someone just give me a model that I can follow or can I just start having discussions with my current employee? We don't want to run them off. So, so are you got, talking, are you talking about a, a <clears throat> obviously a level B level C level technician and here's, here's your starting salary, but you can make this much more based off of productivity or is it just straight salary? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's salary, there's hourly models. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's product productivity bonuses. There's um, sales bonuses. There's, there's a lot of different ways and methods that shops can pick. I think every shop feels like, cause for so long we've ran this as a carrot and stick industry. Um, if you come in and bust your tail and you're 150% or more efficient as a technician, you make a good paycheck. If you don't, you don't make a good paycheck. And that's that carrot stick mentality. The problem is, is that cars are so more complex. I can't really rush the jobs through. I mean, you know, if I get 14 hours to do a quarter panel these days, it it really probably takes me a solid 12 to do it the right way. So there's not as much of that leeway um, where if a tech takes their time, they're somewhat punished in older payment plans for doing that. So how do we write that ship and, and, I guess, compensate those people according to their skill level. Um, shops are going to have to have different negotiation techniques. They're not going to get every line they want on the estimate. Um, I may get the insurer. We may come to an agreement and our lines may look different. But if I've got a pay model that's based on a technician gets paid for the lines on the estimate, that becomes really difficult to navigate. Um you know, I, I can only work with what I got. It's what I tell people. So I mean, that these these insurance adjusters that have six months to a year experience, I can't make them do what I want them to do unless I take them to court. But none of us have time for court. That's four to five years before I get a resolution. I, I can't hold my money that long. So, I mean, we've got to figure new ways to work. It ain't going to be what we wanted it to be. Or But but if there's still a way to get the money, let's kind of shut up and take it. But, but that's affecting how we compensate our employees. Um. So we, we want to have payment plans where shops can really come and get them and get training on how you would work those plans and then get training on how you would start to have those conversations. Because when you start talking about people's money, um, the toolbox has wheels for a reason, right? I mean, I can unhook them and go to the next shop and the next shop down the road will pay me a, a model I'm comfortable with. So we never just change it tomorrow. We really have to kind of get the shop on board with it. And that's hard for a lot of shop owners to set people down and go, I'd like you guys to help me think about how we're going to change our business. We're pretty possessive of that business. So yeah, we've been a little busy working on all of that. Kind so of- are you, are, do you have a, a core group of, of shops, customers that you're, that you're working with to build these, these, these paid yep. plans? So there's about 300 shops in our C20 consulting program uh, that we meet with on a monthly basis. Um, we have uh, Rachel James, who was a PPG business development manager. She's our business and finance director. So when shops, when we talk about pay plans, um, your P&L, um, how we're going to you know, save your money, taxes, the refunds that are available now, the federal credits for training that are available now, all of that. Um, we just recently had a shop get 100000 from the government in grants to train their employees with. Um, so that that's a significant savings that you don't have to spend your profit on, but you get to develop your people. So Rachel leads all of that. Um, We also have a human resources group out of California. Uh, Wendy Kroll um, started, she was a state farmer, just like me. 
uh, but now has an independent human resources business that focuses on collision repair shops. Um, so she helps with employee handbooks and how we're going to build a benefits package that's presentable to employees and answers all the shops questions. I don't have finance and human resource. I mean, obviously, I'm probably a human resources nightmare the way I kind of yell and scream at people or whatever. So um, I don't have those experiences. And so we Collision Hub is real good at collecting experts um, and then allowing shops to have that access to that hub of knowledge, so to speak, that if I don't know it, I'll go find somebody that does for you. I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's, you have a great network of people that want to work with Collision Hub. Yeah. yeah. That's what you have. They're, That's what you have. They're a great it sounds like, but it sounds like I need to have a, a, do a podcast with Rachel so that we can just talk about this specifically. Probably be a great, a great <laughs> Yeah. Piece. Rachel's amazing. I mean, everybody, I think the whole industry right now is aware from, from, you know, the CICs to the, to IBIS to whatever. I mean, Rachel's just an industry rock star. Um, I love that she was a technician. So she can go out in the shop and, and bang with the rest of us. Um, but she's a licensed federal financial planner, but Rachel really breaks down not only, what shops need to do to make money, but but what do you need to do to keep money? And I think all of us have dreams of retirement and that retirement dream isn't always, I'm going to find somebody to sell my business to, um, or I'm going to give it to a relative or whatever. So we help shops start to think about their, how long do you want to be here? What are your retirement goals? How much money is it going to take for you to make it so that you, you know, my, my dad worked until he was physically unable and we had to sell the shop and he didn't get to enjoy his retirement and it's a regret you know and I kind of look back at that and go don't assume you're always going to have time because you don't um and I meet so many shop owners that that feel like they basically have to work till they die so <laughs> um Rachel's goal is to kind of relieve that and help people plan for college for their kids and how to do it with tax credits and not do it with your money that's so, awesome that's awesome yeah. all right what did I forget to ask you anything I don't know. I'm going to come see y'all, I guess. And I'm, you know, yeah, soon. you're going to be, you're going to be at our, our national sales meeting. We're excited to see you there. So yeah, I'm excited all to get right. together with everybody. Wait, I think it's with post COVID. We just all haven't seen each other in a while and I haven't even traveled. Well, I've been out working with shops individually, but I haven't been to industry events. So I'm excited. Excellent. Well, we thank you all so right. much for, uh, for being on here. All right. See you soon, sir. See you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>